0: One interesting thing I see Jesus do right before his arrest is gather his friends and go pray in a garden. And this time he's crying out. He's suffering with his fate. He has to endure that he should die for the sins of all mankind. And during this period of suffering, it's interesting to me that he has his friends around him. Of course, His friends drop the ball by sleeping instead of praying with him. But still, Jesus gathers his friends around him during his period of suffering. This speaks to me. When I think about living like Jesus, I think about the lone hero, the one who has to bear the weight and suffer alone. In our individualistic age, we glorify this kind of hero, the hero that could go it alone. But that's not how it should work in our suffering. That's not how it should work at all. And Jesus proves that. So here's the question I'm trying to solve today. Why? Why do we need each other? Why can't we go it alone? I mean, some people are bold enough to say, that you don't need to interact with the body of Christ in order to grow in your Christian walk, in order to really live like Jesus. But I want to add some heat to that view and really investigate the importance of community. I wanted to find a story that modeled the importance of community and the church. And that's when I found Eric Fuseli, who is the bassist in the band The City Harmonic. His story is one of suffering, confusion, but also about the value of community. So with that having been said, you're listening to the Jesus Hacks Podcast. Let's get started.
1: So I play in a band called the City Harmonic, and we we were all just kind of regular dudes from different churches around town. We're all from a place called Hamilton, Ontario up in Canada. And um, you know, we just sort of quit our jobs uh in 2011 because we just suddenly were on the road touring full time. And it was just a crazy year. We got a song on the radio it seemed by like dumb luck. <laughs> or uh, you know, I mean, now looking back, obviously God sort of provisioned for us, but or his his orchestration, but you know, that for whatever reason, it launched us into this sort of like crazy helter-skelter pace of touring for the first time in our lives. You know, I was working at a church at the time as an intern, uh, church planning intern. And, uh, one of the guys was working at a factory, um, downtown. And, uh, it was just like, it was just a crazy time. Um, so, so we, we spent the full year touring we got to the end of that year and we found out basically in early December of that year that we were going to go on this massive 65 day tour in January. So we said, you know, this is crazy. We need to stop and slow down. So we took Christmas off. We took two or three weeks, maybe even the month and, uh, just were at home, thankfully. And that's when I started to get this sense that something was wrong. Uh, you know, growing up, I wasn't wanted to get the flu a lot or get colds all the time. I mean, obviously I did, but it wasn't like it was abnormal if I got a cold or something. But that month I just was getting like cold like symptoms and like all kinds of weird stuff was happening with my body that just I had never experienced before. And uh, my wife, uh, you know, consistently was like, you know, you should probably go see a doctor. Um, Something doesn't seem right that you continually through the month get worse and worse and worse. So Christmas came and went, and I I kept saying no, no, no. I don't need to see a doctor. I'm a dude. That's what we do. We don't see doctors, which is (laughs) the stupidest thing. I don't know where it comes from or why we do it, but uh, I'm guilty. Um, Anyway, yeah. So, so uh, Christmas came and went, and we're maybe a few days away from going on this massive tour. Uh, And finally, I just got to the point where I was feeling so bad. I just let you know, and my wife was still saying, you know, you should probably go. And finally, thankfully, I did. Uh, so I went to go see my family doctor, and he he kind of called me into his office and did some blood work and took my blood pressure, and he said, "There's a couple of red flags, nothing crazy, but let's let's get some more blood work done, and then you know when you're back from the tour, we'll we'll talk and we'll figure this thing out." Um, so yeah, I went home, started packing for the tour, um, and then literally that night uh, at midnight, I got a phone call from a, an on-call doctor. And he uh, he was shocked. He was totally shocked to hear that my voice. He's he expected my wife to answer or a family member, somebody else, because he actually said to me on the phone, "Is like I don't even know how you're talking to me right now. Your blood work is so out of alignment uh, that you shouldn't even be upright." So um, he said, "Whatever you got, whatever you can do, get however you can get to an emergency right away." So I went and woke up my wife in the other room. She was sort of all disoriented and shocked, and you know. You know, we'll, sure, we'll do whatever we got to do. Let's get you to an emergency room. It's kind of this chaotic moment. Um, So we got to this, uh, the hospital is closest to my house, and uh, just kind of sat there for hours. It was, and remember, I got the call about midnight, so I didn't get into the, you know, to see the actual doctor until two or three in the morning, and then they did some more blood work. I got a blood transfusion because they thought my blood. Uh, my my hemoglobin was so low that I, you know, oxygen just wasn't getting to to my body. And so that made me feel infinitely better. So I was like, okay, great. You know, that was probably it for whatever reason. Maybe it's an iron deficiency. There's a bunch of options it could have been and the blood transfusion seemed to work. So, um, but yeah, I thought that was it. We kind of were like, okay, well it's four in the morning. I'm feeling good. I'm feeling way better and, uh, let's go home. But the doctors weren't ready to release us yet. So another couple hours pass by. This is probably like, you know, five in the morning. And uh, this doctor sort of comes in nonchalantly with a chart, flipping through it, kind of looks down and looks up at me finally and says, uh, I'm sorry to tell you this, I, I, it looks like you have leukemia. And uh, my wife and I just, you know, we're exhausted. It's so late. It was just a really surreal moment. So the feeling of that, of that, you know, I mean, I'd heard the word leukemia. I knew it was a form of blood cancer, um, but that was probably the extent of my knowledge. Uh, so we just kind of sat there in silence for maybe an hour um, and had no idea how to process it.
0: In January 2012, Eric was diagnosed with cancer right before a large tour with his band. After that diagnosis, things got complicated fast.
1: That night in the emergency room, when I got the diagnosis, uh, my wife and I just kind of were sitting in the moment, uh, unsure how to re- how to react, uh, with no information, no no ba- no way to get our bearings, and um, it wasn't real yet. You know, it took. I mean, I'm I'm talking about a few hours. It was probably. 7 or 7.30 in the morning before we came to grips with the fact that I had to call my family and she had to call her family and tell them. And um, honestly, even just thinking about it right now, I'm, I'm kind of welling up a little bit, but like in that moment, listening to my wife on the phone with my with my mom and my dad telling him that I had cancer, <laughs> I, uh, you know, I can't even describe that feeling.
0: At this point in the story, my heart is heavy. I'm watching Eric on the screen, and I can't fathom having to go through the whirlwind of finding out I have cancer and then telling my family about it. But just when I expected the story to get heavier, I was surprised by what Eric told me next.
1: The first couple of weeks were actually really um, a a positive feel, like it kind of shifted right away after, after that initial day of shock and, and sort of warning. Um, we got, you know, actually the first uh, first time when I was allowed, I think it was in that first week of being, you know, admitted to the hospital um, before chemo got too intense, um, we just invited basically everyone we knew to come uh, just, you know, swimming by and say hi at different points if, if they were free. Because we knew it was going to be a long haul of treatment. And at some point, you kind of go into isolation because the chemotherapy basically, particularly for leukemia, just fries your immune system. They, they take everything, um, take your body's ability to fight off disease or viruses of any kind. So you kind of can't be around people. Um, so we invited a bunch of people and uh, before things got bad. And uh, it was, <laughs> we, we didn't plan this, but everybody just wound up coming at the same time on the same day and we just took over the lobby in the, in the hospital there. And it was crazy. It was like this, it just felt like a massive party. Um, and, you know, I'm sure some of the other uh, patients that had been admitted were a little irritated with the, the noise, but, you know, it was this really amazing thing just in that first week of, of being diagnosed and, you know, uh, sitting there in the hospital, honestly, like never at any moment, except for overnight, Was I alone? Um, So it switched from this like chaotic environment, this, this, this moment in time, this, you know, these, these hours where we're just waiting in this hospital of, of, you know, surreal, like what is happening to an extreme sort of uh, sadness and mourning and not knowing if there was a plan or, or if there was any chance of survival. And then all of a sudden to getting some sense of like, okay, there is a plan and there is there is treatment available. And not only that, but all my friends and family are here surrounding me, rallying around me, and doing this sort of thing together in solidarity. So it's, just, it's actually, you know, all mixed up in that first week is this, like, extreme low and extreme high all-in-one sort of mixed bag.
0: Eric had the love and support of the community around him, and really the entire world. I mean, his band is internationally known, so people were praying for this man they hardly knew all around the world. This surprised Eric. But of course, things were still bleak for Eric. There was still a chance that he wouldn't make it out of this alive for heaven Cause I believe heaven's coming my way While I'm alive I'll be getting on with living like you're coming Before we return to the story, let's break to hear a word from our sponsor. For this sponsored message, I ask Michael King of Information Systems Integration what makes them stand out amongst other IT service providers. Well, Kit and I, with information systems integration, we are committed to making sure that our business is used to promote the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're still figuring out what that means, but we definitely want to uh, operate and employ Christian practices in the way that we do business. Uh, Certainly, people with technology mindedness are a dime a dozen so we want to be different and use Christian principles in the way that we do business and aside from that we also want to uh, use the profit that we make from our business to advance the gospel of
1: Jesus Christ uh, as best we can through, uh, through what we know and what we do as a
0: business. There you have it. Visit isicg.com slash faith to see if their services are right for you. Things got increasingly dark for Eric as time ticked on. You know,
1: not knowing if I was going to live or die kind of drove me crazy. You go into this, um, I did, I, I, I went into this day-by-day survival mode. Where it was actually, I found sometimes, you know, to kill time because we were there all the time and my wife was there with me all the time, um, by my, by my bed. Um, we'd watch, try to watch movies or they'd encourage me to be reading books or, or, or just whatever we could do to, to be entertained at least in some way or to find some semblance of escape. And I just couldn't focus because I couldn't, I couldn't actually, I remember saying this to my wife at the time. I, I said, I could, I can't, I can't watch a show or a movie because I don't understand uh, the drama. I don't understand, you know, facing death put me for some reason into this place where I just started to, to lose perspective on what life was about. I couldn't, I actually said, I, I don't understand relationships. I don't, I'm, I'm watching, you know, stuff on the screen play out and it doesn't make sense to me anymore. Uh, which was just a strange sort of place to be um, and, and really very, very dark, you know. And in terms of my faith at the time, too, it had a pretty profound impact because I, you know, my my view, I, I wasn't, I didn't, this is strange, too, but I didn't really ever go through a, you know, why God, why me? Um, that didn't come until, you know, long after when I was in recovery mode. But at the time, it was more like, you know, I know that God has the power to heal me. Um, I know that he has healed people in the past. And I know that he does whatever it is that he wills, and he's good. Um, But I don't know if he's going to heal me.
0: But then, Eric tells me of a turning point. A story of a time when his hope was revitalized and his perspective changed.
1: Um, So one particularly dark night... Um, I just, I, I, kind of broke down, and, uh, and thankfully my dad was there, uh, sitting beside my hospital bed, and, you know, I was just going on. I said, you know, I don't know which way is up, Dad. I don't know what, I don't know what it means to die. Well, you know, if, I, you know, in that moment, I was fairly convinced that, you know, it may be God's will that I die. I don't know for what reason, but He's going to use it for good. But it may be His will. And, uh, I don't know what that means. I don't know what I'm supposed to do to die. Well, and I don't know if I have the faith, you know, that, you know, to see this through. And, uh, he, my dad, um, kind of talked me through it and he was, you know, trying to encourage me through it. And, uh, he reminded me of this story in the gospel of Mark that, um, it's in chapter two. Where these four friends are, uh, with their paralyzed friend. He's, he's crippled and he's laying on a mat. He's been on a mat all his life. And, um, Jesus is teaching at a, at a house nearby and it's just packed out because, you know, he's been, he's a controversial character to say the least, uh, <laughs> in their area. And, and he's teaching and, 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 people are being moved by his, his preaching and teaching. So, you know, it's no surprise that he's, you know, packed out this house for people coming to hear and teach. And so the four friends with their with their um, paralyzed friend pick up his mat and bring it to the house, but they can't get in. So they go to the roof um, and they physically tear a hole in the ceiling, which is madness um, (laughs) when you think about it. And then they um, lower their the mat with their friend on it to the feet of Jesus through the hole. Um, So uh, you can imagine that's a crazy scene. Um, but they, they, they drop down with a friend and they're standing in front of Jesus and, the the, uh, Mark, the writer of the gospel notes that, um, it says when he saw their faith, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, your sins are forgiven. And then some people question that, you know, can you forgive sins and all that? And he says, which is easier to, to forgive the sins or to, to heal him. And he actually heals the man physically, tells him to stand and take his mat. And so my dad sort of, you know, goes through that story again with me like I just did in brief and then just says, did you notice that key phrase when he saw their faith? There is plural. And he's talking about the four friends just as much as he's talking about the man on the mat. And in that moment, for whatever reason, it just it just occurred to me, you know, I am surrounded by people. Uh, who have faith on my behalf that God can heal me. And even more that God, if he doesn't heal me, will use it for good. So even if I don't have the faith to see this through on my own, I'm completely surrounded by a community of people who are so devoted to a faithful, good God for me on my behalf who are praying for me who are who are taking care of our practical needs for me and my wife and my family who have rallied around us and you know a bunch of my friends you know shaved their head when i went bald, and you know there are so many people around me like those four friends with the man on the mat Uh, and this i didn't have to suffer alone
0: you know eric realized that though he was beginning to doubt his survival, he wasn't suffering alone. And those people, the people who surrounded him, they had faith that he was going to make it through this. He wasn't suffering alone. That moment, it energized Eric's faith in God's goodness. And as I heard that, I realized that this is why we need community, in the moments where we doubt, where we fail and fall short in our suffering. There are people around us who can keep us strong, keep us hopeful, keep us fighting. People can push us closer to God when we can't do it ourselves. Thank goodness we have that grace. Back to the story. Eric was hopeful that he was getting better. But then, The unexpected happens. He goes in for a bone marrow biopsy. And afterwards, the doctor tells them the unfortunate news. Eric had relapsed. The only thing left was one last-ditch effort for survival.
1: So, you know, we didn't know from that point what what was going to happen. But what we did, we got called into a meeting about a week later. And they told us that the only option left because chemo and radiation weren't working anymore was to get a stem cell transplant. And so what happened was my, they tested my siblings. I have three siblings, two brothers and a sister. And um, they tested all of them to see if we were a match. Uh, if the siblings are a match, usually that's the best case scenario. But even still, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not, the percentages of survival on a stem cell trans- transplant aren't great which is why it's a sort of back pocket last ditch effort option. Um, so yeah, they told us that we would need, I would need a stem cell transplant. They tested my siblings and it turned out um, that my sister was a 10 out of 10 perfect match, which is quite rare um, as I'm told. And, um, and, you know, at that point in, in, in that meeting, we were told, you know, if, if we can't find you a match in your siblings, we have to go to a database and the database typically takes, you know, a long time, months and months and months, if not a year or longer to to find a perfect match or a suitable match even. And, uh, you know, at that point they were saying, you know, it sounds like you or it looks like you probably got about six months to live if we can't find you a a transplant. Um, So by, by, in my mind, a a miracle of God, my sister was a perfect 10 out of 10 match. And so they just started prepping right away for that. And the 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 stem cell transplant process is is kind of a grueling preparation. Uh, It was it was pretty hard on my sister. She, um, I mean, it's it's the bone marrow transplant was was the old way of doing things, and that was where they would have to you know do a bunch of different punctures on the donor and and the patient as well. And they didn't have to do any of that, thankfully. Um, But you know they had to give her these hormones that caused her bone marrow to overproduce stem cells. And then essentially, what they did is—I mean, there's a whole bunch of crazy stuff that happens. You know, they had to put me, hook me up to this machine that changed my plasma so it matched her, her blood, and um, yeah. So there was about two or three weeks of, of preparation, um, but then the actual, you know, procedure itself was this anticlimactic kind of thing. They literally took uh, a bag of stem cells out of her bloodstream, and then let it drip into uh, a tube in my neck (laughs) and let it just sort of happen over about the course of an hour. And uh, yeah, it was just this really simple seeming uh, procedure that wound up saving my life.
0: Eric was weak from the experience, but he was healed. This experience ended up having a profound effect on the band. It actually reminded them why they came together.
1: And, and I got back to playing with the band uh, in the fall of 2013. So we just started to have all these conversations about, you know, I mean, I almost died. And and by, by, by all means, from the numbers, the stats, I probably should be dead, um, if not for God's intervention. And that does a lot of things to you. You know, it, it has made me, um, I can't even really define yet or describe yet all the different ways it's affected me. But I tell you, it has it, it, it has changed my perspective on a lot of things. And one of the things in particular that we started to talk about as a band is what are we going to do? And it, it sort of reminded us of what we were called to. And because my story was so obviously, you know, about the the people of God, you know, the body of Christ, the church coming together on my behalf to take care of me, you know, in this unified movement, it, it was a it was an obvious reminder that we come from a, a community a church community in our hometown, of unity. Where the movement over the last 15 years has been towards unity to, to address actual, real, you know, human needs, um, one-on-one with people who are just hurting.
0: The City Harmonic is from Hamilton, Canada, an area that used to be known for providing about 60% of the country's steel. But after that industry and the economy crashed, Hamilton became known for their great poverty. So their hometown had a lot of need. And this is the world from which the City Harmonic emerged. The City Harmonic was actually the result of a ton of local churches coming together, despite denominational differences, to serve the good of the city. In other words, the City Harmonic was born out of the church, being the church. Eric's sickness reminded them of their origins.
1: So the whole, you know, me being sick and coming back to the band, we sort of have had this, you know, reimagined or uh, reinvigorated vision of what we kind of set out to do in the first place. You know, we were commissioned by, um, I think, 35 or 40 different churches elders, pastors, and lay leaders who gathered around us at a conference and, you know, at a true city conference and said, you know, we love what you guys are about. You came out of this movement. You've been profoundly influenced by it. And they sort of commissioned us to go out and tour and tell the story and, you know, bring churches together if we can. And so that's become our new mission. So the new album kind of is, rides on the back of that. You know, it's, you know, the first single is We Are One. The last song on the album, and that's the first track, the last song on the album is called One, and it ends with this rallying cry of, make us one as you are one. So, you know, the 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 album that we put out before called Heart dealt with a lot more of the sort of darkness, uh, the ups and downs of being six more directly, but this record is more about like, you know, we've had a little bit of time to step back and reassess and, and be kind of reminded i think that you know we're, this is our call and it and it ties so perfectly into my story of like seeing the church work in unity and feeling the church firsthand work in unity to to take care of its own
0: if you listen to the city harmonics new album you'll hear this message of unity all over it eric and the band experienced firsthand the power of what happens when people come together on behalf of the needy and suffering. So now, as I listen to their music, I can't help but be reminded that this is what the church is called to do, to come together and serve for the good of the world. Christianity, it doesn't call us to be lone rangers. Living like Jesus is not about becoming a lonesome ascetic. It's about walking in community. But I admit, that's something that's hard for me. It's hard for me to accept help from people and to grow with people. But now I understand. I can't do something bigger than me if it's just me. That's how movements work. Someone accepts help from others, and then together, they serve others. So that's what I'm choosing to do. I hope you'll do the same. show notes and companion materials to this episode, visit JesusHacks.com. Thanks for listening.